out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week is going to be the turn of the writer-journalist. It is Nigel Tassel, who has just put a book out titled Whatever Happened to the C86 Kids? An Indie Odyssey. This has just been published by 9-8 Books and is available from the 18th of August 2022, a hardback, also available as an audio and ebook. The book is around the 22 tracks that came out on the new Musical Express cassette back in 86. It's a page turner. So this is the interview, so after several minutes of casual chat, we got down to that exciting subject that uh, was, um, why? Why did you do a book about such a niche thing? But um, it's not quite so niche anymore, is it? Anyway, Nigel, tell us all. I was looking for a book. I, was looking, I, I write, I alternate between popular culture books and sport books. Um, and I thought my first book was, was about live music back seven books ago. And I thought I want to write another music book. So I, I'd scan the CD shelves looking for inspiration. Who hasn't had a book written about them? Went through the vinyl. So then went up to the loft through the cassettes. And while I was up there, I wasn't really finding much inspiration, but I thought, oh, I'll, I'll dig out all those enemy tapes while I'm up here and found, found the C86 one in the final box I looked for. Um, and because it was in my brain at the time that I was, I was thinking about an idea for a book, I actually, it actually came to me in a dream. This sounds corny, cliched, you know, Paul McCartney-esque, you know, in terms of writing yesterday. Um, and I had this, just this dream that I was out meeting various people of the, you know, the Mighty Lemon Drops or Bog Shed or whatever. And I just happened to mention it in passing to my agent who said, yeah, yeah, there's a market for that book. I could sell that book. And within, you know, within a fortnight, we, we were up and away. Yes. Well, it's great because it, it has a very defined sort of um, 22 tracks, basically, isn't it? So you, you do have a beginning and an end and, and the ability to become Sherlock Holmes, which I can relate to because it is fantastically fun. So, so, at, so we were those kids in the in the eighties who used to get the NME cassettes, whether it was country, jazz, African music, and um, bluegrass. I think as well, wasn't there? There was all they they used to for anybody listening. And the NME was brilliant, and also apart from the free singles, they would do these great cassettes that we used to buy. And um, some are still untouched, I have to confess. The country and western one never got really played. The jazz one I wanted to, but the, the this one is well and truly thumbs. So at the time, did you like the, the kind of general indie scene? I was, yes. I was probably slightly more mainstream than, than the bog sheds and the shrubs of this world. Um, so at, at the time I was 86, I was listening to the go-betweens, obviously, um, Liberty Bell, the Black Liberty Bell and the Diamond Express came out that year. Born Sandy Devotional, of course, the Triffids, what an album, what an album. Yes. Uh, the Queen is Dead, Life's Rich Pageant. So this was a kind of portal into a more, a more niche world. And I wasn't a John, particularly a John Peel listener at that time. I had a paper round and he was on at 10 o'clock and I had to, I had to be up down the paper shop at six in the morning. So I wasn't much, I was much more Janice Long Saturday right. Night Radio one. And, and her taste would be a bit more mainstream, would be the go-betweens, you know, would be would be playing Smith's tracks. But certain certain tracks on there chimed with me, the Bodines, the Mighty Lemon Drops, Meow. I love that Meow track still, still one of my favourites on there. And so it opened the world to me, like those other tapes did. You know, I remember another big favourite was Department of Enjoyment from 1984, which would have had the Smiths on, had Lloyd Cole, had Orange Juice. So it had a good enough bands that you knew, but then pushed you a bit 
into yeah. into into realms. You know, who, who's Robert Wyatt then, and who who's Winton Marsalis? I remember was on there. Doctor John was on there. You know, they were so they really did work in terms of widening horizons very much so they were really formative c86 possibly less so because it was much more narrowly defined than than the others but as a collection you know that's a great start to a a record collection if someone was given you know 36 or whatever tapes they put out during the 80s yes because it was it was um at the time i guess it was very niche but then talking to neil taylor who was one of the people put the cassette together it was one of the nme's most kind of popular ones and then cherry red picked it up and then and i think there's been a few other compilations but they definitely put out a 66 track triple cd and then they've gone with it with the idea of going forward each year haven't yeah, they and yeah. they got to c91 i still think they should go backwards to c80 c81 but um rather than 91 but anyway that's just details so then you thought this is good and i can relate to this you thought let's try and interview the 22 people well this, so, this, this is this is the thing so so we have we have a deal with the publisher and i've got yeah a bit of money in advance and so right i've now need to go and find these 22 bands i'm i'm fortunate in that i know nigel blackwell from half man half biscuit well over the years so he was my first port of call. Nigel, would you like to do it? And he's quite a contrary soul. So there's a fair chance to go, I'm not interested. And then the whole idea, the whole endeavour is scuppered and I've got to repay that money back to the publisher. He was on board and I'd, I'd interviewed David Gedge for, for a previous book before. He was on board. But I still, I had no links with anyone else. Despite being a music journalist for 20 odd years, I wasn't a music journalist in the, in the mid late 80s. So I didn't really have the contacts. So that made it, it was good because there was a real sense of jeopardy. Am I going to get these people? Is this whole endeavour going to be, you know, scuppered on the rocks? Um, but it just it just mushroomed. The more I got who wanted to be involved, oh, you've got so-and-so. Oh, I'll definitely do it then. And then so when, when I got the 22nd uh, band was on there, the final one, that was... And you yes, know, so it we, was, we're away and running. Because it is quite impressive because there are some who seem to just disappear. There's some which are kind of obvious and they're just really friendly people. And um, you think, oh, this is this is going easy. And then there's some that you just think no one wants to talk about it. Because that's the other thing that I found doing the show is that it sometimes takes 20 years, 30 years for someone to process it and want to remember what happened in those five years of being in the band. I didn't realise that when I was doing this show, that um, people said, if you asked me two years ago, I would have not said, I would have said no. But I kind of, I thought, okay, I'll tell you my story then. And it was like, it was, it's, um, it's fascinating, but it's also like a bit therapy in it as well. Did you find, did you find some of that kind of, God, that story. I have I've tried to forget it and block it, but now let's talk about it. It's absolutely. Only been... I think you're absolutely right because most of most of the people, you know, it's 95 musicians who played on those tracks. And most of them are either late 50s or early 60s. And I think that that 60th birthday is a kind of a threshold, you know, of okay, right, you know, deep breath. Are we going into the third age, what they call it, you know? Um, but also the fact that there's, there's, there's a fair few who are no longer with us of those 95 musicians. So there's a, there's a sense of mortality and there's a sense of, well, if I don't tell someone my story now, is there going to be an opportunity again? And I think you're right, you know, had I done this five years, 10 years ago, they would still be thinking, yes, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm still going to hit the big time with this band. We're going to come <laughs> back and we're going we're gonna to do it. But they're possibly not kind of in that, that evaluation mode quite at that point but i think i think i think the 60 mark is 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 quite a threshold for them 
and yes. solving as they approached it or as they'd just gone over the brow of it, um, then they were more willing to talk. And yes, I was delighted that we I managed to get all Because uh, there's some artists who are just tricky, aren't they? And I'm thinking of Meow is, is one. McCarthy is another one. And you did really well on the shop assistants. And like you said, you already had half man, half biscuit. So your story with Meow, which was quite fascinating, isn't it? Kath <coughs> Carroll. Kath Carroll, yeah, trying to get hold of Kath Carroll, and I had we have mutual acquaintances in the, in the music journalism world. So, and I got eventually got I don't want to give too much away, but eventually I got a lovely email from Kath, and I thought this is great. You know, it was going to be one of the really problematic ones, but then, you know, spoiler alert, I'd, I'd never heard from her again, and that was fine. You know, people want to you know put a lid on on past lives, that's fine. But uh, I got Chris the drummer, and he was he was absolutely fantastic. He was he was really great, really willing to talk because. He didn't really go on and do music after that. After after Meow kind of went their separate ways and Kath went on to a solo career, he just went he just went into kind of an office job. I mean, he tells this, this great story in the book where Kath was, was signed to Factory and they didn't want the rest of the band. They, and he would have to cycle past this massive advertising board um, on his way to his dull office job. And it would be Kath's face, huge Kath's face, and, you know, <laughs> having having been sent to Brazil to go and record a debut album. And and Chris was just literally on his bike and just, oh, you know, kill me now. How close was that? Yes. Well, I suppose the one thing, I think the, the thing about the, the, the 80s indie world, there was, we did have these, um, I suppose... I suppose, I suppose there was like the three weekly music papers. There was John Peel. You know, they, we did have these kind of, uh, I, I suppose, beacons of people who, if you had a John Peel play and a John Peel session, it gave you that, ele- it elevated you to that next level. You weren't playing just in front of your, you know, um, I suppose your friends and family and anybody else you can blackmail to see, to come and see you. Plus every little town and city in the UK had alternative, and they probably did in the 90s, an alternative indie night, probably on a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. So all these bands surprisingly played so many gigs, didn't they, as well? That was the other thing about that that kind of period, without it sounding like a rose-tinted sort of moment. But they were. They were tight as anything. You know, they, they, particularly McCarthy and the Bodines, both had permanent rehearsal spaces, both in, through their dad. Bodines had it in a room above... Um, Paul, the guitarist's dad's engineering works, so they could leave their gear set up the whole time. So it wasn't a case of paying for studio time, getting a van or someone to give them a lift, setting up the gear, then maybe playing for an hour and a half and then having to do everything in reverse. It was permanently set up. All they had to do was turn up, and they Bodine did four days a week and were tight as anything. Same with McCarthy. Um, Tim, the guitarist, his dad was the chairman of East Ham United Football Club. And so they had a room there with the gears permanently set up. And so they were really tight as a nut. You know, they weren't just kind of Monday nights or scratch about and that was it. They were really, this was their their thing, you know, what their their main passion and energy went into. Yeah. And also the other thing that that sort of, for us, we probably remember it well, but um, there was a lot of unemployment in the early 80s, weren't there? A lot of people were leaving school at 16 or 18, possibly 18, and doing the Job Seekers Allowance, Enterprise Allowance Schemes, all those things just to say, oh, well, I'll be a year, you know, if you had a thousand pound in your bank account, you could sort of become part of it. You could be a sort of a private or an artistic entrepreneur, you know, on the job seekers allowance. No, not job, enterprise allowance, wasn't it? Yeah. So the, I think a lot of people went, oh, I'll just be a musician. And at that age, with no kind of idea of what might happen in the future, no kind of particularly career thought, there was a sort of a sense of, well, we'll just drink, smoke and play in the band. And so, you know, there's those quirky bands like Stump, Bogshed, 
and Big Flame, who frankly weren't looking for stadium rock, but were just thinking, well, this is quite a nice little thing to do while we're squatting in some horrible place in probably Manchester's. So again, that kind of helped create this kind of interesting and quirky indie scene, which I don't think would happen if you had to go into the office on a Monday and then work there until Friday. Absolutely not. You know, as, as much as John Peel's an enabler to this scene, as much as the enemy is an enabler, the enterprise allowance <laughs> from talking to them is absolutely crucial because they didn't even have to go in once a week and go, what have you been doing? Have you been looking for a job? What kind of work? He said for six months, you were guaranteed you had to go in every six months. I think David David Westlake from uh, The Servants told me. And that's all you had to do. So you just got this, whatever, 50 quid, hit your bank account once a week without you actually even having to go through the pain of going yes. into the job, uh, job centre and, and chatting to people about it. And so that just enabled them to just, you know, have the time, have the time and space to be able to write a song, craft a song, you know, hunt around for gigs. Because if everyone's doing a nine to five, you just don't have that time otherwise, you know. So, um, and, you know, and it's Thatcher's Enterprises scheme, this, this enterprise <laughs> allowance scheme is the, the ridiculous thing that we wouldn't have had that cultural art, artifact necessarily, certainly not in that form. No, we wouldn't have like that. It is, is that's the, the kind of irony of it, especially when, you know, a lot of people are, are singing songs against her. <laughs> she's, the, she's the she's one of the chief enablers of it. She was, and she was the you know, reason for so much anger. But yes, and also you got your housing benefit and council tax paid. So triple whammy, really, and, and 50 quid, you know, happy hour down the pub at five o'clock and fill your boots, really, wasn't it? Yeah. That was all good. So doing doing the 22 um bands, which was quite a feat. How long did that take, by the way? Not too bad. It was I, I, it was quite an intense period. I kind of I, probably we're probably talking about five period of five months, not full time at it, but it being the primary thing in my brain, you know, the, the, well, I've got an hour spare. Let's go and find Bogshed's bassist in that time. Let's put that time to good use. Yes. Um, so it was, it was quite intense period, but once, and it just snowballed once, once it gathered a momentum of its own and people would start saying, Oh, right. Well, I'm good mates with so-and-so still. Here's his number. Here's his email address. You know, that that helped the detective process as well. Um, and then just case of getting out in the car and meeting people. I wanted to interview as many people in the context of what they do now as much as possible, you know, of the lives they lead now. So for someone like David Callahan, you know, singer with Wolfhounds, he went on to have a fascinating life as an ornithologist and writes bird books. That's his, yes. his main thing. So I went bird watching him with him at silly o'clock in the morning um, <laughs> on, on Rainer Marshes. Because I just I just wanted to get some colour and a sense of who they are now. Because there's, you know, a lot of years have passed, you know, everyone looks very much different. Um, and uh, and and the lives they necessarily lead are different. You know, for, for every primal screen that's still doing it, you know, there were five others who, you know, Gave it up in by 1987, 88, you know. You definitely aren't doing it. Yes. Yeah. And also the interesting thing is there's a couple, there's a professor, isn't there? Big flame. He's he he went on to yeah, be a professor yeah. Greg, of architecture. became professor of architecture. You a lot of them did go back to academia, actually. Um, so David from the Servants, Servants did as well, went off and because they didn't do it first time round. So they, they go as mature students, find they're quite good at it because they're mature students, so they've got a bit of life experience. So they're getting good marks. They've been persuaded to do postgraduate stuff as well. Then a lot became teachers as well. Um, but also some, some fantastic stories. You know, one of them I'll, I'll, I'll reveal is um, Julian, the guitarist, one of the guitarists in The Shrubs, 
who trained to be an actor afterwards, and uh, he's in one of the Star Wars movies as a, a TIE fighter pilot. You know, it's stories like that. When I, when I first had the idea and I thought, well, let's look a few up, people up. And you go, yeah, there's, there's, there's legs in this because of the fascinating lives that they've led, you know, and so they've got really good stories to tell. Yes, the narrative is fascinating because because also I found or find the early years, the school, the family, you know, what happened, the band period, which is normally about five years, you know, they get together, 12 months faffing about John Peel play, John Peel session. This is really simplistic. First yeah. album, things are going well. Second album, not so good. And we fall out because there's a lack of money and they all sort of got to hate each other in that yeah. five years. And it kind of keeps it quite clean. I think they just wish they'd enjoyed it more when they were in the band and obviously there's some bands that are still going but most were just like yeah the lack of money and the tension within the the little unit but then it is the the kind of story of then then what happens when you've been on the NME you've you know you've done these tours you've even done Europe a few people have done America then what do you do next and some have kept in music but like you said a lot a lot go into quite creative industries I mean yes it would be too simplistic to say everyone has a great life but not many people, it's not like the New York punk scene of the 70s and 80s where they all got into smack and died. No, no. You know, they, they all slightly get themselves together and sort of like, yeah, you become really amazing people with this interesting little past, which is which is kind of fascinating. So was there any other bands that you, you struggled with? Because obviously there's quite a few that were probably like, oh, yeah, my God, they're so full and friendly. But were there any others that, apart from Meow, that were a little bit of a... Difficult not, one. Not really. I mean, the, the beauty of it is that if if the singer turns you down, there's still a bass player, there's still a guitarist, there's still a drummer. You know, so I think all all but Big Flame are at least quartets or quintets. Um, so there are there are plenty of other people. It's 95 to choose from, and we've got 22 chapters. Some some yes. chapters I speak to four members, or mighty mighty, I speak to all five because I sit in on one of their rehearsals. Other chapters, I'll just speak to, to one of them, just, just so the chapters have got variety as well. Um, so it wasn't too bad. You know, once 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 you could kind of identify certain people and, and you you kind of think, oh, they've, they've quite an interesting life. What are they like as a talker? You know, there, can you find any other interviews with them? Ideally, ideally not, because, you know, you want it to be the first time they've spoken. Um, and yeah, it was. It, it, there weren't any the real struggles, you know. One or two, you know, you get you get the knockback and you think, oh, okay, I'm a bit disappointed. But you just <laughs> bounce back up and you go, okay, well, you've had this interesting life as so and so, but the bass player has done this, and there he is on social media, and I can send him a quick message. And we're off and away, and you know, you 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 bounce back from those disappointments quite quickly. Yes, and the bass player and the drummer, if the drummer hasn't got tonight tinnitus, which is often the case, because they went, yeah, I wish I. What do you wish you could tell your sort of sixteen-year-old self to wear earplugs? But they they have the story that they, no one's ever asked them a question, have they? But they've got the story more than the everybody else, because that I suppose that's the other thing about this is that most because people sometimes have said to me, oh, why don't you interview so and so? It's like, yeah, but they have interviewed all the time, and I kind of know their story and on board but all these bands and all the other indie bands from the the 80s period especially which are focused on they've never told their story so it's a bit like you hit play and it's almost like god i've hardly had to say anything because you're just you've got all this stuff that's come that is <laughs> because back in the day the enemy wanted the singer and the guitarist maybe you know the, the chief songwriters probably the ones you think have got most to say the bass player and the drummers, you know, they tend to get, they are the neglected ones in these. So when you approach them, we go, and, you know, I remember John from McCarthy, the bass player, and he said, oh, you know, 
I remember, you know, I was, I was, I was trying to persuade uh, Malcolm the singer to, to, to join in and went sort of through John. John goes, I don't suppose you want to talk to me because I'm in the baseball. I was like, yes, John, I do. Totally. <laughs> I sent you, I've sent you Facebook messages. He goes, well, I haven't used that for a while. So, you know, they're, they're really, really willing to talk and they're, they're, they're very much up for it. And, and they will have a different perspective on these things as well. They won't be towing the party line. You know, 35 years have gone. So they don't matter if you, they don't tell, if they tell the truth now, you know, there's, there's less riding on it. A band's reputation and how they're perceived by public, who they want to buy their records. You know, now it's those days are over. You can tell them like they were. Yes, absolutely. I mean, there's this there's surprise in how many the experience of being on the record label, whether well, mostly it was all very independent, was never good, which is always the sad thing that most of them never saw a penny, which I always found or still find quite sort of like, oh, that's such a shame. But they didn't mm. understand the business. And I must admit, even though when people try to explain it, and I think I vaguely understand it, but it still seems like unbelievably complicated. I think that's that's the kind of slightly sad thing about it. But books like this, I do think, because because what's 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 been kind of interesting in the last few years, there's been all these films made about all these indie bands, you know, from, you know, George Best, The Wedding Present, to The Go-Betweens and The Triffids, as you mentioned earlier. And then there's been quite a few books. And actually, it's kind of rebalanced the 80s, because up to a point, it was all becoming a bit, um, what's his name, Dylan Jones. His yeah, 80s yeah. was like, oh, we had Sade, and then we had Spandau Ballet, and then there was Live Aid. And it was like, Oh, actually, this is this is kind of the, the story is a little bit odd here. I'm not quite sure. I was kind of you know aware of all those people, obviously, but it, that wasn't my 80s. So it's it's a huge relief to hear, you know, the other side of these. And there's so many other clubs and so many other sub genres of the 80s indie world and fashion world that it's brilliant that you've kind of brought this book out because I think I do think it's absolutely fantastic, and I've been sort of like excitedly reading through it. So <laughs> even though you know I. No, the story is quite well, but there's still things. And I really, and I suppose it reminded me a little bit vaguely of Bill Bryson's journey, you know, like, um, was it Notes from a Small Island, of, of your story of going to see these people, which I thought was just fantastic, because it kind of, especially the half man, half biscuit, you know, was just fantastic, and the shop <laughs> assistants as well. So that was a really nice touch, wasn't it? Because because Neil Taylor, who did the tape, his kind of book on C86 and all that is so dense. It's like, Jesus, Neil, you really have, got the knowledge here whereas yours is much more kind of it's a nice it's kind of a nice personal relationship isn't it I that's that's oh, well I'm glad you think so because that's all I, I try with all my books you know I've written books on football books on films on the film Fargo books on cycling but what I always try and do as much as possible is a travel element where I go out and meet people and it's not a straight travelogue but I'll, I'll drop little bits in you know to give the reader a sense of place Writing is all about making sure the reader is kind of right there on your shoulder. You know, you don't want to keep them arm's length because they're, they're disengaged with the book and they're really easy, it's really easy for them to put the book down. You want them to be feel like they're in the room, they're having a cup of tea and eating Nigel Blackwell's biscuits with yes. you. You know, you, that's what you want as much as possible. But also what that does is then for someone who isn't an absolute avid acolyte of a particular subject, you're broadening its appeal because... Um, and what I hope to do with this book, it, it's telling the stories of these people's lives. It's not the story of, of C86, because Neil had already written that. I wasn't trying to replicate that at all. It was more how these people have chosen to live their lives. You know, they were the floppy fringe ones. Now, most of them, like myself, you know, no longer <laughs> have those floppy fringe. You're fine. You've got a fine head of hair, David. Um, but, but 
you know, it's and they could be doing anything. It could be any jobs that they were doing. It's trying to kind of find that universal element in their stories and their lives. Of it's about life and regret and friendships and happiness and being young. You know, everyone's got a story about being young. It just happens to be the backdrop here is 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 indie music. Yes, well, I, I you know, like I said, I think it's it's been a delightful read, and I've really enjoyed it. You know, especially especially it's the bands that I thought, God, they were so difficult to get hold of. And how did you manage to do it? Which was kind of particularly kind of fascinating. So I really enjoy that detective element because I suppose I could relate to it as well. So it, it, is, it has been a fantastic. I mean, was there anything in particular that you discovered at the end of it that, you, you know, you didn't have a clue at the start of your kind of creative journey with the C86? Um, one, one word, there's a, there's a few kind of recurring motifs going through it. Main, part, part of them is a lot of them fell out because they were just in the back of a van and the back of a van when you're on the M6 for however many hours, however many days a week, that kind of, you know, that was quite a universal story, but that, that, that that's kind of predictable. But the one, the other story that kept recurring was how they all, mo- almost all of them felt they put the wrong track on that tape <laughs> because <laughs> yes. they didn't know, I mean, no one knew the, you know, no one would have guessed that two men, 36 years later, are having a chat about that tape. You know, they saw it as, okay, let's just give them that B-side. In fact, you know, most of them got some money to go and record a new track. Stories stories range from 50 quid to 200 quid, but enough to go and put a track down, especially for it. Uh, but so many of them thought, well, no, if we do our best song that we're going to put out as a single in a couple of months' time, we're not going to sell copies of that single. No one's going to remember this tape in three, four weeks' time. Yes, and, and that was it. So the savvy ones. I mean, it, it's it's quite instructive that the savvy, the the ones who did put their best songs on there, i.e., the Bodines with Therese, Primal Scream with Velocity Girl, both signed to Creation at that time. And I think someone at Creation, i.e., probably Alan McGee, just thought, no, don't give them big please. We'll give you your very best songs because everyone else will not be giving anything as good as that. And so, you know, we start with Velocity Girl and there's quite a few that I interview people going, well, they put that first. How do you follow Velocity Girl? You know, one one hour, one minute, 21 seconds, you know, pop purity. Um, so a lot of them say, you know, and there's almost a market you could put an alternative C86 one out, uh, LP out, with the tracks that they wish they had done, the tracks they had there and ready at the time. Like McCarthy, they put, you know, Something is not really representative of, of certainly McCarthy singles, which are a bit, you know, much more upbeat and you know, it's quite quite a dour track, Celestial City. They wish they just, you know, put put something, you know, one of their early singles out, you know, even if even if it affected sales, you're still reaching forty thousand people with this tape versus the fifteen hundred who might buy the single you're putting out yourself and you're yes. taking you're taking around to record shops yourself. And then, and then you get poor old Phil Wilson from the June Brides who <laughs> turned down, down, down the chance of being on the cassette. <laughs> oh dear, never mind. Have you spoken to Phil at all about that? About that yes. About, yeah. What, what, was, what was his reasoning for it? I suppose it's like, oh yeah, because most people go, you know, as a fan, you go, oh yeah, you're a, you're a bit of a scene, you know, I'm, you know, just a fan. Um, but they go, no, no, we weren't part of that scene. It's like, well, okay, but you are really, you know, there is a, there is a moment. I think it was just like, no, we, we don't want to get pulled into that scene. We don't want to be labelled. Oh yeah, that's the thing, isn't it, for artists? We don't want to be labelled. It's like, I would just get labelled and branded while you can, because 
Because the other thing that I found that, that, you know, which I hadn't sort of appreciated so much is that there's kind of a wave of almost five years where the next wave of 16 to 18 year olds come along and sort of 83 to 87 is my, you know, the indie pop years. Actually, it's the years of the Smiths. Then they split up. Ecstasy comes along. And then it's like, right, we, you know, the next wave come along. They they want to dance and they want to groove. It's really simplistic, but it kind of is good enough for me. And, and then you get the Seattle grunge scene. So, you know, when I've done those interviews with like the Wolfhands and the Primitives and Mighty Lemon Drops, it was a bit like no one wanted the next album. It's like mm. no one cared. The, no one wanted to write about us. No one, the fact didn't even want to come and see us it was like oh yeah no no wonder you gave up really that was just the end of it they didn't need the the next album at all so uh, yeah I mean, it, the, the, the fundamental problem with it as a scene is that it had date in its name you know if it was a scene <laughs> called 86 ball by 87 that sounds really old-fashioned you know something in the future you know when we were kids space 1999 do you remember that yes. of the future and that's what that's going to grant something 99 now you know that's that's 23 years ago you know, the, as soon as you put, you, as soon as you put a date on something, that's, that's it. You've you've given it its limited lifespan, and that's it. It's going to be, you know, its before date is going to elapse very quickly. But the great thing about that period and and the sort of the gatekeepers, aren't they? Like you know, the enemy and John Peel, Janice Long, Keith Jensen, was that you know everyone in America, kind of you know who I interview, and even Australia know about the C eighty six because they were getting the NME weeks later after it had been published and and you know some people have said oh yeah i want to yeah i'd love to be interviewed for the show because i remember getting the cassette and you think blimey you're, you're the drummer with you know courtney love in the early 90s and she said yeah and she knew all the bands and it's like yeah. so it does have that thing so i think bringing out the book now is kind of going to be brilliant because again people have got the time to want to just remember it and and then discover all the other bands around there and the you know cherry red records 66 track you know compilation yeah, yeah, yeah. so i think it's just fantastic i'm so pleased you've put it all together and thank it's such you, a great you. read so um thank you yes. very much and on the football front because that was my other love what was your what was your kind of world cup oh 82 or 86 probably uh, so both of those yeah um hmm. 82, I was into music by them because I was already into, had the Teardrop Explodes Wilder album for Christmas 81. So I was already properly into getting into proper music. Um, but 82 is an amazing World Cup, obviously the Brazilian team as everyone thinks of. And 86 was just, and England, well, that was that was the first World, World Cup with, as, with England in it. Yes. Since yeah. I was a baby, you know, since 1970. So, oh no, of course it wasn't. No, they were in 82, but they didn't do much. But 86... They actually scored some goals and won some games. So it felt like there was a bit of momentum. So, uh, yes, the, right in the middle of the 80s. So I kind of straddled both. I was I was this indie kid, but I was still... And football wasn't cool then. So it wasn't, you know, at school, it was either you're into sport or you're into music. And I kind of... I had a foot in both camps. Obviously, you know... Yes. Ahead of your of Italia 90 and World in Motion and everything. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I was a trailblazer, basically. That's what we're saying, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, look, thank you so much. And just real, rough, roughly or briefly, have you got any other books kind of lined? What's your next project? Um, I can't. It hasn't been announced yet, but I'm back to football for the next one. And then and then it will be a music one beyond that. So what I try and do, because it's, it's my main source of income is writing books these days um, with, with, with the music journalism, music press going the way it has, you know, over the last 10, 15 years. Um, that I tend to, to think a little bit bigger now. But what I tend to do is, is skip between genres because if you do a music book, I couldn't do a music book next year because the paperback 
of this book would be coming out. So you don't want to interfere with that. So yeah. you skip onto a different subject and then you kind of skip back. And it, it means it, it, it keeps me fresh as a writer as well, you know, and it, I'm not just interviewing sportsmen or I'm not just interviewing musicians, you know, it, it keeps it keeps things good. So it means that I'm excited to write about music again, having written about football or cycling yes. or, or whatever. Yeah. Will you be doing some live dates with John Rolfe or someone like John Rolfe? Have you got some live, you know, are you going to be touring the book? And um... there, there, there will be some live dates. Yeah, we're just, we're just finalising that. Yes, there will be both both soon and and sort of later in the year as well. But yes, nothing, everything seems a bit, a bit up in the air at the moment. It's a case of, because you want a nice host, you want a host that's also going to bring people to it, maybe a guest, and it's just coordinating all of that. It's, it's taken longer than finding 22 music, well, 30-odd musicians, you know, from, from back in the day. Yes. Yes, indeed. That is Nigel Tassel talking about the new book that's come out, Whatever Happened to the C86 Kids. And Indie Odyssey, it's a great book. Just check it out. 22 chapters, 22 songs, bands. It will blow your mind. Anyway, this has been the C86 Show. I'm David East, so if you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. Keep it positive and groovy. All these have been archived on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. Check them out. They might just change your life. They probably won't. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.